Everyone knows one of the greatest love songs of all time, Careless Whisper. George Michael wrote the song when he was just 17 years old, but its heartbreaking saxophone melody stands the test of time. Yet, even at that age, he may have had the precursor to the condition that led to his early death in 2016 at the age of 53. He died of dilated cardiomyopathy, a rare but under-recognized cause of heart failure that can be due to genetic, infectious, toxic, or even autoimmune factors. Today, our patient has dilated cardiomyopathy, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Two Sizes Too Big an approach to dilated cardiomyopathy. Let's start with our minute physiology. Generally synonymous with the term non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, dilated cardiomyopathy, or DCM, is characterized by left ventricular systolic dysfunction that is not due to an ischemic, valvular, hypertensive, or congenital heart disease. In most cases, dilation occurs as a compensatory mechanism for reduced contractility. It can be due to a wide range of causes, the most common being familial or genetic, idiopathic, and infectious. Most recent estimates place the prevalence of DCM at approximately 1 per 250 individuals, about twice as common as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. About 30-50% to of cases are linked to familial DCM, and only 40% of these cases have identifiable genetic causes. Many genes have been implicated in the development of dilated cardiomyopathy, but in general they affect genes encoding for cardiac proteins. The most common mutations are found in genes encoding for titan, TTN, prelamin, LMNA, and myosin, MYH7. Infections that are associated with DCM can be viral, bacterial, or parasitic in nature, and generally involve a degree of myocarditis. Particular infections to rule out or to be aware of for examination purposes would be HIV, Chagas disease, and the enteroviruses. Unsurprisingly, autoimmune conditions commonly involve some degree of myocarditis as well, and the most associated ones are systemic sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, dermatomyositis, and sarcoidosis. Conversely, medications used to treat some of these can also cause DCM, such as hydroxychloroquine. DCM is also linked to drugs such as alcohol, amphetamines, or cocaine. Medications such as anthracyclines, lithium, and 5-FU, although this is classically more so a cause of coronary vasospasm, are possible causes of DCM as well. Let's not also forget metabolic and endocrine disorders such as thyrotoxicosis or hypothyroidism, growth hormone excess, Cushing disease, pheochromocytoma, thiamine, or selenium deficiency. Heavy metals excess, iron overload, and copper deficiency are rare but treatable causes of DCM. Last but not least, neuromuscular diseases such as muscular and myotonic dystrophies as well as pregnancy can cause DCM. Regardless of the cause, in DCM, ventricular dilatation results from remodeling and fibrosis of the myocardium. The ventricle assumes an enlarged spherical shape with reductions in stroke volume due to both diastolic dysfunction from increased left ventricular and diastolic filling pressures as well as impaired systolic function from alterations on the Frank-Starling curve. Systemically, compensatory changes include increased systemic vascular resistance, which increases cardiac afterload, as well as increased venous pressures and circulating blood volume due to congestion. 
Now let's talk about the approach. Despite the underlying cause and unique pathophysiology, once progressed, this disorder can present as any manifestation of left or right heart failure. Therefore, the diagnosis of heart failure will come first, and only after that with further investigations will you find a dilated cardiomyopathy. Manifestations of poor forward flow could be exertional dyspnea, syncope, decreased exercise tolerance and fatigue, anginal chest pain, or even hypotension and cardiogenic shock. LV failure can lead to pulmonary edema and dyspnea, orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. RV failure can lead to peripheral edema and anasarca, cardiorenal syndrome, and congestive hepatopathy. Due to myocardial involvement, patients may also have atypical chest pain and palpitations or hemodynamically significant arrhythmias. Your first step in any patient encounter will be to assess whether your patient is stable or not. Are they hemodynamically stable? What are their oxygen requirements? Are they having active chest pain and are they mentating well? The differential diagnosis for a new presentation of heart failure includes severe valvular disease, acute and chronic ischemia, obstructive shock, pulmonary hypertension, among many other conditions. You will need to make sure that this patient is in the right environment before proceeding. On history, you will want to characterize their severity of heart failure. What is their baseline functional status and what is their present NYHA classification? Are they having any dyspnea at rest or are they having any orthopnea or PND? What is their current CCS classification for angina if they are having any sort of chest pain? You will also want to ask about infectious prodromes or recent infections or any symptoms that might be related to underlying autoimmune conditions such as joint pain, respiratory symptoms, proximal muscle weakness, and skin and mucous membrane changes. Next, ask about personal or family histories of cardiac conditions, including sudden cardiac deaths, premature atherosclerotic disease, heart failure or transplantation, autoimmune conditions, and malignancies. Take a full medical history, including past and present medications, as well as a full social history, including alcohol, drugs, and other toxin exposure, travel history, and a sexual history. On physical examination, cardiac examination should involve the inspection, palpation, and auscultation of the precordium, and with particular focus on listening for any audible murmurs that might suggest a valvular problem. Listen for signs of pulmonary hypertension, such as a pronounced P2, as well as signs of right-sided heart failure, such as split P2, jugular venous distension, or a tricuspid regurgitation murmur. Listen to the lungs for crackles or wheezes, particularly at the bases. Does the patient have an S3 that may indicate elevated filling pressures, or do they have peripheral edema? Is the capillary refill time normal, and is the patient warm and perfused, or are they cool to the touch? Inspect the skin, small and large joints, and mucous membranes for any signs of infection or autoimmune disease. Let's talk about the workup. Blood work that you should initially consider ordering would be a CBC, electrolyte and extended electrolytes, and markers of renal function such as creatinine and urea. You may want to order a cardiac troponin to assess for any active myocardial injury or ischemia, although this may be elevated in many states including decompensated heart failure, renal failure, and myocarditis, and so it is relatively nonspecific by itself. If the diagnosis of heart failure is in question, you may want to consider ordering a BNP, and even if you are certain, it may be of prognostic value regardless. All patients should get an electrocardiogram and a chest x-ray. The key investigation here will be an echocardiogram to clinch the diagnosis. All the specific values may vary based on practice contexts, 
the echocardiographic definition of DCM relies on an LV end diastolic diameter greater than two standard deviations above normal and a decreased LVEF less than 45 to 50%. As well, to meet the standard definition of DCM, coronary artery disease needs to be ruled out with either left heart catheterization or cardiac CT angiography, and there should not be any significant primary valvular disease. Once the diagnosis of DCM is made, all patients should have further testing, including iron studies, HIV screening depending on risk factors. As well, depending on the context, patients can be sent for further infectious testing, screening for autoimmune disease such as ANA and ENA panel, myositis panel, serum ACE and calcium, and toxicology screens. Strongly consider a basic metabolic workup such as TSH, CK, and liver synthetic and enzyme labs. Of course, you must exclude pregnancy in any premenopausal person with a uterus. More specialized testing may be required in the course of workup and treatment, including Holter monitoring, if there is any suspicion of arrhythmia, genetic and family testing, cardiac MRI, particularly in patients suspected to have an inflammatory or fibrotic cause, FDG PET, and even endomyocardial biopsy for suspected inflammatory causes. Okay, on to treatment. The management of DCM is based on a few different principles that are common to all heart failure syndromes. The first is a focus on achieving optimal guideline-directed medical therapy for heart failure, per the most recent guidelines and randomized clinical trial evidence. This may include medications such as angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor secubitril valsartan, beta blockade, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, SGLT2 inhibitors, isosorbide dinitrate slash hydralazine, digoxin, and nevabradine. The second principle is decongestion, similar to all types of heart failure. This is typically achieved with a combination of diuretics and lifestyle modifications such as sodium and fluid restriction. The third principle is device therapy. Following medical optimization, patients with persistent decreases in LVEF less than 35% should be considered for ICD implantation and patients with complete left bundle branch block should be considered for cardiac resynchronization therapy. This is because these patients are at higher risk of sudden cardiac death and malignant ventricular arrhythmias. Select patients with severe functional MR can also be considered for mitroclip device therapy, as well as per class 2A recommendations in the latest 2020 ACC-AHA valvular heart disease guidelines based on findings from the COOPT randomized trial published in 2018. Besides general heart failure management, if the underlying etiology is known, then select patients may benefit from directed therapy. For example, biopsy-proven viral myocarditis can be treated with targeted antiviral therapy, and virus-negative myocarditis might benefit from immunosuppressive therapy depending on the cause. Let's finish with our medicine minute. The Danish study, published in 2016, examined the role of ICD implantation in over 1,100 patients with non-ischemic DCM on optimal medical therapy and LVEF less than 35% with or without CRT. Interestingly, despite no significant effect on all-cause mortality at over five years of follow-up, those with an ICD had a significant 50% reduction in sudden cardiac death. This effect seemed to be independent from that of CRT. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Two Sizes Too Big, An Approach to Dilated Cardiomyopathy. 
This episode was written by Dr. Jasper Ho, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Katie Connolly, cardiologist, and Dr. John Neary, general internist. The series was created and produced by Allison Lai and is executively managed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshmi Santhamoe. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for associated resources and infographics. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.